The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Where the story goes, we follow Chris Smith on today's News Talk TNT Radio. G'day, g'day. Welcome to the show. I hope you're well and I hope you're coping with the lead up until Christmas, not that far away. What does my calendar say? 20 days, 20 days only until Christmas and then 26 days until 2024. Where did 2023 go? Like scary stuff. Today, I'll tell you about one of the attendees in Dubai at COP28, who my spies there tell me no one at all recognises, except that in less than a year from now, He will be one of the most powerful men on the planet, and he's in Dubai to prepare for that destiny. I'll reveal who I'm referring to. Maybe you can guess. Maybe you can guess. I'll refer to him in just a second. My special guest today is longtime CIA analyst Ray McGovern, from Kennedy all the way to Bush, in fact. We'll hear what he says about Israel's vow to eradicate Hamas, no matter where they are. What kind of pressure might Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu be under at the moment? And in 2024, who does he think will uh, survive the year? Ukraine? Joe Biden? We'll put a few people and countries to Ray McGovern when we catch up with him in just a short moment. From down under today, we will cross directly to Parliament House in the capital, Canberra, where the government is in all kinds of very familiar trouble over illegal immigrants. It is one thing the Labor Party has never got right in Australia, and it's always been their downfall. The release of 141 mostly criminal detainees has very quickly led to two cases of alleged serious criminal behaviour, and the government is copping a battering over it in the House. We'll hear what Senator Holly Hughes makes of the mess and whether the two ministers who are involved in the chaos should resign. Now, there's also pressure from within federal labour and union ranks for the Prime Minister to stop running away from nuclear. Will Anthony Albanese join the rest of the Western world? We know what Emmanuel Macron said in Dubai only two days ago. They've got to be, they should stop being foolish and look at the future with nuclear baseload power. And we'll discuss the large Jewish vigil in Melbourne last night in which women were demanding women's rights groups condemn the murder, rape and mutilation of women and children in Gaza on October 7 because the silence, they say, has been deafening. I'll also speak with a pro-Palestinian organiser on the program today about how they're Uh, how long they're prepared to continue these weekly rallies. They're holding one in Melbourne almost every Sunday. And what they make of the war now shifting into southern Gaza and some Palestinians saying there is nowhere safe to hide. And there's a stack to talk about on the economic front this week. We'll hear from Dr. Natalia Ilushina about a major US study released today on who the winners and losers are from the pandemic. Uh, We've had interest rates as well, a decision on those in Australia. Are we out of the woods yet? And working from home while staff in private firms are being told to get back into the office, it's not the same rules and regulations for those in the public service. But Natalia Iloshina will join us next hour. And from this moment on, 
the lights are flashing, the lines are open for you. You can set the agenda, have your say. Tell us something that you think we need to know. And you can dial in from the United States or Canada on 1-888-201-6425. Set the agenda if you think we're not talking about the things that you want to hear. From the UK, 033-0024-1026. And from Australia or New Zealand, 1-800-670-310. You're with Chris Smith, broadcasting from Sydney, Australia, on the Global News Talk Network, TNT Radio. Live. Abroad or at home, this is your news. By staying silent, we are part of the problem. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, it doesn't matter where you get your news and views from. Not a day goes by at the moment when you don't hear or read something related to next year's big election. With less than 12 months remaining and Christmas just three weeks away, the constant noisy reminder and the speculation is sure to become an avalanche come January. The government is polling downward and the next big name on the international stage and someone who'll be influencing Western nations, of course, will be someone by the name of Keir Starmer. Tricked you, did I? Forget about being obsessed over the United States presidential election. The UK is a superpower as well. And most international decisions made from the White House are usually in conjunction with the British Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak, as we know, is a dead man walking. The Tories are a dead party plotting for salvation somehow. And Labor's Sir Keir Starmer is well and truly preparing for office. The polls are on his side. And right now, his strategy to take over number 10 has never been more pronounced. In the opinion section of the UK Telegraph over the weekend, there he was. The once rarely mentioned opposition leader from Labor now handed free kicks in the form of opinion columns. And he's pitching directly to traditional Tory voters. In fact, he's pitching to old Thatcherite fans from that revered Tory history. Starmer heaped praise on Margaret Thatcher over the weekend, would you believe, for effecting meaningful change, he wrote, in Britain as he launched an appeal to Conservative voters to switch to Labor for 2024. Now, the editor also wrote about his opinion piece. The editor said in his most audacious bid yet, to woo centre-right support reminiscent of the new Labor years, the Labor leader accused the Tories of a betrayal of their promises to control migration. In a shift from his staunch opposition to Britain's departure from the EU before becoming leader, Sir Keir added that the Conservatives have failed to realise the possibilities of Brexit. He's changed his tune there. Starmer praised Thatcher for setting loose our natural entrepreneurialship and warned that the public was again fed up with politicians hectoring. That is a man already on the hustings and prepared to bend and stretch to be like almost Tory light as the Labor leader. But just because his words appeared in Britain doesn't mean the man himself was there. Where would the next likely leader of the UK be, given what will play a key role in Labor policy in 2024? At COP28, of course, in Dubai. Yes, Sir Keir Starmer was one of only a few national opposition leaders to jet into the climate change talk fest. 
and attracted as much media attention as Rishi Sunak, although only from the British press because my spies tell me no one recognised him. Starmer was even asked by a BBC reporter why he was even there. I'm here because it's in the British national interest that I'm here because if there is an election next year that we are privileged enough to win, then it's very important that we go all out for Clean Power 2030, bring those bills down. I've had the opportunity here to talk to world leaders on this. I've talked to global investors this afternoon. They want to plan with us how they might work with us if we come into government in order to reduce people's energy bills, take us through that transition. So I'm here because it's in the national interest. It's also a statement of intent so that everybody can see how an incoming Labour government would act differently from the current government, which frankly is shrinking from its obligations here. And that's being felt uh, not just across the globe, but back in Britain as well. It's hard to tell whether Keir Starmer believes in the climate change fear-mongering or not. But like most politicians, he's got to talk up his credentials because there are votes in this. Starmer gave voters the clear impression he'd be full bore on offsetting global boiling. He said he'd lead a clean power alliance to accelerate the energy transition, whatever that means. He said he was making a statement of intent that a government with him at the helm would play its full part on the global stage through leading by example. Now, that will attract green evangelists, no doubt about that, those green evangelists who are looking for a green prime minister. And his mere appearance at a, you know, a green religious pilgrimage like COP28, it's a good look. Um, of course, he's got a big congregation, not just in Dubai, but in Britain. But that's not all the UK Labor Party is doing to openly exhibit their readiness to run Great Britain. Starmer last week sent his shadow health secretary 10,500 miles away from London on a visit to a suburban urgent care clinic in Sydney, Australia. You see, one of the fallouts from COVID-19 in Britain is that there's been a universal recognition that the National Health Service is stuffed. Uh, it's overstaffed, overworked, underfunded, overbooked. It's chronic. So the Shadow Hill Secretary, Wes Streeting, visited one of 38 new Labor government urgent care clinics in Maroubra in Sydney South. As one newspaper described it, Mr Streeting wants to turn health care on its head. Of course, he'll have to put up with the union movement, who don't like much change in that regard. Um, but as The Telegraph wrote, at every visit, medics told Streeting how they are increasingly being lured away from Britain. These are British medics he's finding in Australia, not just by a lifestyle of sea, sun and surf, but by the promise of lucrative work under less punishing working conditions in a health system which is not buckling under the strain. Think the NHS. So there's this massive exodus that he's got to try and stop. Streeting met Mark Butler, the Australian Health Minister, last week and says his meetings in Canberra will help UK Labor develop its health policies. While Streeting knows that, of course, he'll have the union movement to uh, contend with, it's a good look. All of a sudden, he's in a like country looking at very effective means of taking the stress out of the health system. And that's exactly what these 38 urgent care clinics have done in Australia, and they could do the same in the UK. 
A change in government is a short-priced favourite in the UK, and unlike the Republican frontrunner Donald Trump, Britain's next likely leader, Sir Keir Starmer, is not encumbered with legal baggage. Sir Keir Starmer is a smart operator who's showing that he's prepared to learn and work with others. And for frustrated Tory voters, he also doesn't have a far-left-leaning personal history which is why he elected to praise Margaret Thatcher over the weekend. You can be sure that such a sentiment and such a commentary piece will only take him closer to number 10. This is TNT Radio. Jeremy now on TNT Radio. Being South African, I'm, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers, mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I? Yes. Um, since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, so it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year. And we had a farm murder on average every fifth day. Um, but over the last few months, both of those numbers have picked up. Murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders. Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk TNT Radio. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually 9 out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Hey, I've got to mention, remember about two weeks ago, I spoke about Nigel Farage and the fact that uh, he was aiming to turn up as a Tory for a change. Well, he was once a Tory, but it's been 27 years, I think it is, since he's been part of the Tory establishment. Well, he wants to get back. And of course, he's got his eyes on the leadership. He's got his eyes, more importantly, on being prime minister. And then he decided to join I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here in the UK, which is being set and filmed right now in Australia. And a lot of people were saying, oh, this is not going to work. No one's going to watch that. Um, well, Nigel Farage is not only still in the game after two weeks, that's right, everyone said he'd last a day, he's still in the game and a lot of others have left, but the ratings have been phenomenal. Now, let me get up the story that I just caught during that ad break about these numbers. Just bear with me for 10 seconds as it comes up. This is from the Daily Mail in the UK and it says... The first seven episodes of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here 2023 have averaged 9.8 million viewers across all devices. It is also the most watched entertainment series of the year on any channel, overtaking both the BBC Strictly series and Eurovision coverage, according to ITV. That is incredible. 
They were naysaying it from the beginning. Oh, you've got Nigel Farage. You've got a politician. It'll never work. And you know why Nigel Farage is on this television show, because he believes he needs to soften his image. He needs to become more conducive to a younger demographic who wouldn't know who he is, who probably see him as the harsh mega god of Brexit. Well, he's remaining in the game and the game is causing a lot of eyes to watch it. It is the most watched program on any channel for 16 to 34s. He's not stupid, Nigel Farage, with five of the episodes already achieving over 2 million consolidated viewers for that demographic. The show saw large numbers of young audiences glued to their screens for the debut, despite the overall viewership dropping. And that was what happened after the debut, the premiere, two Sundays ago. They bagged it. They said, see, it's not the same as the premiere from 2022, and it was down by about 1.8 million. Who knows what was on on that Sunday night? There could have been other shows. There could have been football on that uh, turned a few heads. But since then, it's rated through the roof, absolutely through the roof. Now, I want to go back to a story which has been written about Nigel Farage. Now, Nigel Farage on this program is talking politics. And a lot of people said, oh, he'll only talk politics, so I'll just turn off. Well, they're not. They are not turning off. Let me get you that story. Here it is, Nigel Farage. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. They are spellbound uh, every time he talks about Donald Trump. They are spellbound every time he talks about Rishi Sunak. Nigel Farage has opened up about what goes on behind the closed doors of the House of Lords. Now, that would attract me. That would attract me to watch, even if it is a crummy show. The former MEP, who on several occasions failed to become an elected MP in the House of Commons during five general elections and two by-elections, is currently on the program. Farage previously admitted that his stint would anger some, but he hoped that some viewers would like him. Well, he's still there after two weeks. During the latest episode of the show, which is filmed in the Australian jungle, he discussed the differences between the American president and the British prime minister. Racing jockey Frankie Dettori took the opportunity to grill Farage about his friendship with Donald Trump. Now, that is worth watching. And sure enough, they did. Ask Trump to get Joe Exotic out of prison, he demanded. The 60-year-old is, of course, currently serving a 21-year sentence, being convicted of conspiracy to commit murder for hire on two counts, violation of the Lacey Act on eight counts, and violation of the Endangered Species Act on nine accounts. We remember that series very well. A presidential pardon is an expression of the president's forgiveness. Discussing the differences between the UK and American political system, he commented, what's out of prison? Amazing the power an American president has. That pardon is a really powerful tool. He's pardoned a few people. All American presidents do. Our prime minister doesn't have any power like that at all. So there he is in front of a younger audience explaining exactly how all of this works. That in itself is worth watching from someone on the inside. And he's had a lot to do with Donald Trump, mainly in America. Um, and they continued on. There were there were teenagers who were on this program asking him questions about certain political people. And he was taught he was he was talking about how some 
politicians uh, will only turn up, this is after they've left politics, will only turn up if they get a massive paycheck. So he's bagging some, which is great viewing as well, and the whole show is absolutely going off its brain. It's just one of the most successful things on UK television at the moment. And don't tell me that's not because of Nigel Farage. Of course it's because of Nigel Farage. Otherwise, they would have got rid of him well before now. And he's going through some of these icky, yucky, and I won't even go into the details, icky, yucky kind of experiments and uh, challenges, and he's winning each and every time. Each and every time. Now, I'm going to catch up with Ray McGovern. We're just having a problem with his audio. We're trying to get him on the phone now because we're having a problem with his Zoom connection. But there's a story which you may have picked up in the last 24 hours which sheds some light on the way in which some of these women at this festival, this Nova Music Festival in Israel, were treated by Hamas. Um on October 7, uh, i got to say it's hard to think about and it's hard to mention, but I think it's important that everyone knows exactly what occurred and how brutal, barbaric and animalistic these savages were. Um, let me read you a little bit of it. Horrific new Hamas attack stories have emerged, including the gang rape of a woman who begged to be killed as police investigate sexual crimes against both men and women. The problem with investigating sexual crimes this far after October 7 is that they might have a suspect from eyewitnesses, but they have no forensic evidence. They have no DNA. None of those bodies were taken away from the Nova concert after they were slain and were given forensic swabs of any kind. So in terms of gang rape, which apparently happened uh, repeatedly on that field, um, they won't be able to prove such a thing unless, of course, a court is convened down the track and they rely on eyewitnesses. But Yoni Sardin, a 39-year-old father of four, told the UK Sunday Times that he is still haunted by the traumatic scenes he witnessed at the Nova Music Festival when the Palestinian fiends slaughtered at least 364 festival goers. That is a big number when you think about it. Think about 364 people in front of you. He said, I saw this beautiful woman with the face of an angel and eight or 10 of the fighters beating and raping her, recalled Sadden, a foundry shift worker. She was screaming, stop it already. I'm going to die anyway from what you're doing. Just kill me, she said. When they finished, they were laughing and the last one shot her in the head. Sadin said he witnessed the gruesome act after pulling over him, over him, the body of a slain woman who had also been shot in the head and smearing her blood on himself so it looked like he too was dead. That saved his life. But he says, I will never forget his, her face. There was another woman who was resisting being stripped by a group of Hamas killers and she was instantly decapitated with a shovel. And it goes on and on and on. I won't go into any, into any more further details, but for those who've survived, they too have a gruesome lifelong memory to contend with. Just awful. Just It's just hard to even 
enunciate that sort of stuff. I'm going to go to an ad break. I do have Ray McGovern on the other line. Ray will be with us in just a second. I might go to him now. Um, A lot of people are asking how far Israel and the Hamas conflict will spill over into the Middle East. A lot of people have asked that from the day dot. Well, in a televised address on Sunday, Ronan Barr, the head of Shin Bet, the Israeli Domestic Security Service, said that Israel plans to launch a security operation to hunt down Hamas members who reside outside of Gaza. He said they'll hunt them down anywhere in the world and compared the planned operation to the operation launched in 1972 after the Munich massacre. On Monday, Ronan Barr reiterated his message and said, we will do this everywhere, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Lebanon, in Turkey, in Qatar, and added that his security service was determined to continue the effort, even if it takes a few years. I have an intelligence veteran joining me today to discuss this and much more. Ray McGovern served as a CIA analyst for 27 years from the administration of John F. Kennedy all the way through to George H.W. Bush. His duties included chairing national intelligence estimates and preparing the president's daily brief, which he briefed one-on-one to President Reagan's five most senior national security advisors from 1981 to 1985. In January 2003, Ray co-created Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity to expose how intelligence was being falsified to justify war in Iraq. Let's go to North Carolina right now. Ray McGovern, welcome to TNT Radio. Thank you very much. Sorry for the technical difficulties. Not your fault. Uh, we'll just blame the gremlins. All good. Is Ronan Barr serious about eliminating Hamas? And is it even possible, Ray? I didn't hear the first word. Is who? Is Ronan Barr serious about eliminating Hamas? This is the fellow in charge of Shin Bet, the Israeli Domestic Security Service. Okay, yeah, yeah, Ronan Barr. Well, yeah, he's trying to do it. And, of course, they're very good at assassination. But the answer to your question is no. Hamas is more an idea. The idea that uh, sprang in 1948 when... uh, when uh, 750,000 Palestinians were displaced, driven out of their native land to make room for Israel. So this is something that's not going to die. It's that old. And uh, the invasion by Israel of what is now the occupied territories in 1967, of course, there are several people in Hamas that are sons or even uh, fathers during that time. So they're not going to give up the struggle until it's uh, satisfactorily concluded. And uh, uh, the military experts that I talk to and that I trust uh, say that a completely different view of the struggle uh, comes to them. Namely, Hamas is in it for the duration. It will not be defeated this time, uh, short of something like uh, Israel using a nuclear weapon in Gaza, which uh, most people don't think is going to happen. And so if you do take out those who are enlisted as Hamas soldiers or the leadership of Hamas, you only have to recruit from the Palestinian population and replace those soldiers, don't you? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, These are people that have a 
what they consider to be and what I consider to be a legitimate grievance. Uh, they've been suppressed for too long. This is their golden chance, I would say, perhaps their last chance to create an independent Palestinian state, whether it's a twin state with Israel or whether it's a unified state. There will be a Palestinian state coming out of this, despite the best efforts of the Israeli army and its full-throated support from Washington. I see that the Palestinians are winning the propaganda war right now, and I see that when this is over, they will win the war anyway because they'll get their Palestinian state, right? I believe so. Now, it's going to be a tough slog, a tough slog, uh, because, you know, 90% of the Israeli people are out for vengeance. I mean, it's really quite something. I mean, if they read their scriptures, uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Well, <laughs> they've changed it to vengeance is ours, uh, say, say Netanyahu and our leaders. So, uh, Netanyahu, uh, even though he is criticized heavily for being asleep at, at the watch when when Hamas uh, attacked on the 7th of October, he still got full-throated support from nine, 90% of the Israeli people. What happens? Well, uh, if something untoward happens, then uh, Netanyahu is not only out of office, but he's probably ending up in jail because they have the goods on him for bribery and all kinds of other uh, infractions. And that's one reason why at least Netanyahu is not going to give up. Uh, the thing that, that really bothers me as an American citizen and as an American voter is simply that uh, Israel could not do this. It would need it never try to do this. And when I say this, I'm talking genocide. Do not blanch before the word. That's what it is. It's a textbook case. Israel could not do this without the full support of Joe Biden's White House, peopled by self-proclaimed Zionists, uh, Joe Biden included. And people don't understand that their ability, that is the U.S. ability to change things in that part of the world, has been frittered away by by a reluctance, by a refusal to recognize that the Palestinian people have to be taken into account and their rights need to be need to be respected. It's very much like South Africa, apartheid. Actually, uh, some leading South African officials have come back from the West Bank, where I have spent some considerable time, and said that the apartheid there is worse, worse than what we experience in South Africa. So uh, that's bad, and it's also good, because uh, no one expected South Africa to emerge as a pluralistic society without extreme violence. I have a hope that this will turn out as soon as it's, it's, it's proven that Hamas will not be defeated. This will turn out with the help of uh, the Arab states and Turkey and Iran. Uh, there'll be a deal made and uh, Israel will be a very different place. I'm not saying that anyone will want to drive the Israelis into the Mediterranean Sea. There'll be a place for them, but it will not be an overweening hegemonic 
place where they dictate what goes on in their neighbourhood. That's very interesting. I think you may be very close to the truth. I need to take a break for news just for 30 seconds. Ray, if you can bear with us, we'll do that right now and come back with Ray McGovern, the former CIA analyst on TNT Radio. And here's the news. Extra, extra. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. After levelling much of northern Gaza, Israel has started bombing southern parts of the besieged territory, despite previously ordering Palestinians to head there for their own safety. Just days after it was revealed America had supplied Israel with bunker buster bombs, footage has emerged of one being dropped on a residential building in Gaza. And as wars rage in Ukraine and Gaza and tensions stir in the South China Sea, North Korea's warned a military confrontation with South Korea is now only a matter of time. Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab or Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's news talk, TNT Radio. I've got Ray McGovern with me right now. On to other issues, Ray. In a recent video, you suggested a new slogan, Ho, ho, Sleepy Joe, genocide has got to go. Talking about Sleepy Joe, has President Biden's cognitive decline been a significant factor, do you think, in this disastrous U.S. foreign policy? Yes, I believe so. Um, On the other hand, he's always been sort of uh, acting out of this past uh, where he sees goblins all over the world, uh, where he believes that the U.S. is truly indispensable and exceptional and he's goaded on in these beliefs by his lieutenants there blinken and sullivan and newland so uh whether or not the president himself is fully compassmentous which i suggest he is not um the people that he's uh, put in place to run our foreign policy are making a real mess of things as a matter of fact uh, for them to be taking on not only Ukraine, Russia in Ukraine, uh, but China, and now uh, giving full-throated support to genocide. And I, again, I use that word uh, advisedly. Um, you know, it's really, you would wonder if you had the JV team from, uh, from some high school running our foreign policy, whether they wouldn't do a better job. That's the existing problem, and, and it's uh, completely complicated by the fact that this is for the U.S. an election year and how Joe Biden is likely to uh, hit out at the suggestion of his acolytes there is very troublesome because it's not only it doesn't matter what I think it matters what Xi Jinping it matters what Vladimir Putin think okay and they look at a very dangerous situation this is the fellow after all who has his fingers on the codes. I suppose he might not remember what the code numbers are, but but he has these equally uh, oblivious people advising him, remembering what the code numbers are. And let me just give you one example. Um, Despite the president's protestations that Russia had already lost in Ukraine, he said that about two months ago, it's just the opposite. The U.S. and Ukraine have already lost. Now, uh, what's the prospect? Well, uh, guess what? They're out of ammunition. Oh, out of ammunition? Yeah, 
Well, you know, as one commentator said after I gave a little talk, he said, you know, running out of artillery shells is worse than running out of bullets. Uh, Running out of bullets is flipping stupid. Uh, But what we have here is proof that NATO is not seriously contemplating a need to defend itself from an attack from Russia. I mean, one five five millimeter shells. I trained on them five decades ago. They're basic. They're, they fit into these howitzers and the one five five millimeter artillery pieces. And you know the fact that no none of them had been produced, or at least not enough for the Ukrainians, and now not enough for the Israelis. Well, that speaks volumes. What it tells me is that it's <laughs> it's proof positive that if people are worried about a revanchist Russia or a Russia that had designs on the rest of Europe, you know, they really ought to had a should have <laughs> produced one five five millimeter shells to defend themselves and they didn't and they didn't even after the coup in Kiev when Russia was blamed for all manner of things after we orchestrated that coup. So, you know, there's proof positive in my view. Shells, shells, no more shells. What, what, what am I saying here? So they ran out of 155 conventional motivated shells. So they did cluster munitions. My God, you know, 110 countries ban that. Yeah. So we can, you know what they do. Then, then we got like, these, uh, um, these special shells on artillery, uh, uranium shells, depleted uranium, okay? Now, that, none of that's going to work. I mean, it's over there. Uh, Russia has just to decide whether they go all the way to the Dnieper River or not. So what's the U.S. going to do in an election year? What's this, what's this mm-hmm. Biden character going to do? Well, his acolytes might suggest, and this will sound outlandish, but they are outlandish. They might suggest, well, we have these many nukes, uh, Mr. Biden. Uh, we could use it. We could just explode one of those. I would scare the hell out of the Russians, and uh, we, we wouldn't lose in Ukraine right before the election. Am I? Do I think that's going to happen? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, my God, <laughs> the very fact that I I think it's possible is is really some something that uh, is new because up until now, in the Cold War, one nuclear powered country did not force another nuclear-powered country into a humiliated defeat. And that's what the U.S. and Ukraine have suffered now. I think Putin will try to go easy on these guys uh, rather than rather than really ruin their chances for re-election. But that's, the, that's what, the, what they look at as they look from Moscow and from Beijing and from other quarters of the world. You know, it's really a damn shame that we have a president who's not really with it and he has these acolytes who think that the U.S. is still um, exceptional, actually indispensable, and can work its will in places like Gaza and places like Australia and the Indo-Pacific, if you will, new phrase uh, con- concocted by those who want to build more warships to put against China. Uh, is this a great country or what? <laughs> Great rhetoric question. I want to ask you about Henry Kissinger. Uh, how did you work with him, and what can you say about his legacy, or, or, or what can you say about how he was like to work with? Well, he was a very complex character, 
And luckily, I didn't have to deal with him on things like Cambodia, on which he is a demonstrable war criminal. Yeah. Uh, so when I came into uh, running a branch on Soviet foreign policy, it was uh, early 1970, and he was interested in, in doing uh, doing a negotiation with Russia to come to uh, agreements on strategic arms. Uh, the way he he and Nixon figured out how to get the Russians to be more flexible was to develop good ties with China. So Nixon goes to China in January of 1972, just before he goes to Russia in May of 1972. And with that kind of threat, that uh, China might steal a march in improving relations with the U.S. Uh, and the Russians just couldn't bear that for good reason. Uh, they came around and concluded uh, the Keystone, the, 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 the treaty that made it possible for us to have three full decades of reasonable peace based on deterrence, and that is the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which limited the number of anti-ballistic missile sites each country could have. And so there could be no, no temptation by either side to, to mount a first strike without realizing that they would suffer immediate retaliation and blow their country up. So, mm. as I say, 19, so I happened to be there because I was working on this with Kissinger. And I suppose that's what I should just tell you. You asked me about me and Kissinger. Well, you know, we we were in the intelligence community, at least in the CIA, we were usually, you know, the skunk at the picnic, you know. Uh, Johnson or Nixon would say, well, suppose we put just, just 100,000 more troops in Vietnam. Well, what do you think? And we would say, no, no result there. You're still not going to win. And so we, we had this sort of sour reputation. Well, on this one, when Kissinger said, do you think the Russians are interested in arms control on its merits? And we said, yes, they don't want to be outspent by us. And they said, and we said, and also uh, they don't want China to steal a march in developing good relations with the U.S. So there's a competitive thing there. Well, Kissinger said, all right, well, let's see if we can leverage that hostility that Russia and China in those days had for each other. And they did. And as I say, being in Moscow uh, at the conclusion of that treaty was just such a incredibly enthusiastic moment for me uh, because I'm, I'm old enough to have been one of those children who used to hide under my desk for fear of a Russian atomic bomb being, uh, being dropped on New York. So yep. this was big deal. Now, another thing that Kissinger, he says, now look, are the, are the Russians going to cheat? And I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, how, how soon can you find out if they cheat? So I went to the people who run the satellites and all that kind of stuff. I said, well, how soon? They said 10 days. So I came back. I said, Mr. Kissinger, 10 days. He said, that's good enough. Now, did the Russians cheat? Yeah. <laughs> they built this, this mother of all ABM radars out in a place called Krasnoyarsk, in the middle of Siberia. I don't see how they could think they'd get away with it. 
We picked it up, of course, took photos of it, showed them to Ronald Reagan at the time. He says, all right, show those photos to the, to the Russians and tell them to tear it down, <laughs> okay? No. They said, oh, no, no, it's not an ABM radar. No, no, it's something else. Well, finally, when Gorbachev came in, and he saw, and he was briefed, and he, he came to, to Reagan. And actually, it was Bush at the time. He said, all right, you're right. These guys have been deceiving everyone. It is an ABM radar. We'll tear it down. And within a month, under Gorbachev's orders, that thing was torn down. Wow. And trust was reestablished. Yeah. And trust not only in the ABM system, but in the intermediate nuclear forces regime, which succeeded in destroying a whole class of intermediate-range ballistic missiles in Western, in Europe and also in the western part of the USSR. That treaty lasted a couple of years longer than the ABM treaty, but Trump in his, let's say his wisdom in quotes, uh, decided he didn't need that anymore. And when the Russians asked us in both cases, when Junior Bush got out of the ABM treaty, and Trump decided he'd leave the INF treaty. They said, what, what are you doing? And said, none of your damn business. But, you know, but this is none of your business. And that's why we have the kind of distrust and the lack of communication now, which imperils uh, the Ukraine uh, episode, for example, yeah. Um, yeah. to get out of proportion, get even worse than it is today. Yeah, I've run out of time, Ray McGovern. They are fascinating stories, fascinating stories. I'd love to pick apart several of them, but fascinating. Thank you, mate. Much appreciated. Thank you for your time. You're most welcome. Bye now. Oh, good, good to have you with us, former CIA analyst for 27 years, Ray McGovern. He just knows it. He's got it all there, and you can hear the way he tells the story. It's almost like... It happened yesterday. Got to take a break. I'll speak with a pro-Palestinian organiser right after this break on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Facts matter. And the fact is that until the COVID-19 genetic therapy injections hit the scene, we didn't have thousands of young athletes dying in competition, in training, or home asleep in their beds. We didn't blame things like a previously undiagnosed genetic cardiac anomaly or taking too cold a shower or walking too briskly to class. And the fact is that it wasn't Israelis that kidnapped Palestinian Olympic athletes in Munich and murdered them. It wasn't Israelis that blew up nightclubs in Berlin and Indonesia. It wasn't Israelis that drove a truck through a Christmas parade in Wisconsin or shot up a Christmas market in Germany. It wasn't Israelis that stabbed to death festival goers in Stockholm. It wasn't Israelis that did these things. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Most people are unaware that bad bacteria can grow quickly in food that's stored, prepped, or cooked incorrectly, and that can lead to food poisoning. To avoid bad bacteria, always make sure your hands and cooking utensils are clean. Keep raw meat and chicken away from food that won't be cooked. Run your fridge at or below 5 degrees Celsius and use a meat thermometer to ensure your meat's being cooked to at least 75 degrees Celsius. For more tips on keeping bad bacteria at bay, visit foodsafety.asn.au. The voice of a changing world, Chris Smith, on today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
Well, last week on the program, I spoke with Australian Jewish rally organiser Olive Birenbaum, who'd given up his day job to engineer rallies and vigils around Australia. He spoke about how reluctant some Jewish people were to be so vocal in public. He admitted, too, that the number of innocent Palestinians killed in Israel's war against Hamas was terrible, and he hoped that the IDF would spare Palestinian lives. Well, this week, to be fair, I wanted to speak with a pro-Palestinian organiser. And joining me now is Moyad Ali from Free Palestine, Melbourne. Moyad has been busy ensuring that pro-Palestinian supporters turn out every single weekend to stand behind those under attack in Gaza. But I get the impression it is not difficult to motivate them right now. He joins us from Melbourne. Moad Ali, welcome to TNT Radio. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for being with us. The number of Palestinians killed by the IDF must be angering your people. I know of Israeli supporters in Sydney who are just as angry that this has occurred and that the IDF has lost the support of the world. Absolutely. We are we all um, angry about loss of life from any part, from any side. Um, so far, we lost about more than 20,000 Palestinians, including 6,000 kids. We don't know how many of those kids are still under the rubbles, and we don't know their fathers and their mothers where they actually end up. So it's um, horrific s- stories we hear, horrific photos we, we see from coming from Gaza, and we hear from the friends there and family and links. It's not actually um, expected to be at that scale, and we as Palestinians see this is an absolute genocide to the people in Palestine in general. Of course, you would recognize that what occurred on October 7 was a massacre as well, right? Well, we, we, um, we absolutely against any loss of life, of civilian life from yeah. any part, from any side. Yeah. Why don't Islamic countries in the Middle East take in large groups of Palestinian refugees? I don't understand. I know that they're saying, and legitimately so, that they're in southern parts of Gaza and they can't find safe haven because that's where the bombing's going on now. I understand and I, I feel for these people. But why can't other countries in the Middle East take large numbers of Palestinians as refugees right now? What a great question, Chris. Do you know that? Uh, 70% of the people living in Gaza right now, they are actually refugees from cities and towns that have been ethnically cleansed in northern Palestine. If Israel concerned about their life, why they don't actually give them the right of return according to the international law that give the Palestinian rights, the Palestinian refu- refugee right to go back to their own towns and villages? Mm. If Israel concerned about peace, and uh, life of Palestinians, why Israel not actually giving them the right to go back to their towns and villages in, in 48? I understand that. This is a good question to ask. This is a good question to ask a, a pro-Zionist uh, or a pro-Israel uh, uh, person. Why mm-hmm. Israel actually siege those 70% refugees out of the Israel, uh, Gaza population and not let them go back to their villages. It's a fair question, but my question still stands. Why aren't large numbers of Palestinians being welcomed in places like Egypt and and Syria and Yemen? 
When? Now. Now, and will come for to be a refugees, you mean? Yeah. Why? Why they should go to become a refugees in different country while their land is still there? Mm. I don't understand why this question being raised. The, the right, the right thing to do is those people have land. This is the, they, they are the owners of the land. Can we ask the Aboriginal people of Australia to go to New Zealand? Yeah, fair, fair, a fair point. It's a very fair point. I want to ask you something. On Sunday in Central London, a joint rally took place with families from both the Israeli and Palestinian sides, and they were both showing respect for those who've died on both sides, both October seven and through this terrible bombing attack. I asked Olaf Birenbaum, an Australian-Israeli rally organiser, whether he would entertain such a joint gathering in Australia, and he said yes. Would you consider organising a joint Israel-Palestinian rally in Melbourne? Well, um, you know, our our most hard-working activists are Jewish in our movement in Melbourne, and we work hand by hand for years to build our peaceful uh, pro-Palestinian uh, advocacy in Melbourne. Right. So we're doing that already. You're doing it already? Yes, with uh, pro-Palestinian Jewish. How many people are we talking about? I'm talking about big numbers. And you can, uh, like, I'm happy to actually link you with some of them so you can talk to them and they can express what they feel about Israel and what they feel about the atrocities against the civilian Palestinian people in Gaza and, the, and in the West Bank. I'd like to speak with them. We've seen okay. some violent incidents, not necessarily in Melbourne, but all throughout Australia at these various rallies, mainly pro-Palestinian rallies. Do you support violence at these rallies or do you think that loses you general support? Um, no. Uh, look, we against any violence in our rally. We anti-violence in our rally. We um, welcome anyone to come and rally with us for pro-Palestine. We have very good cooperation with the police, with the uh, Melbourne uh, Victorian police, and we have a great culture of peaceful rallies over, over years and years. Um, I think our rallies is very safe to come. We have almost our families there, our kids and our women and our young people rally with us. It's not violence. It's very lovely environment to be there and support the people in Gaza and in the West Bank. Despite the genocide that you say is going on at the moment, and yeah. gee, it certainly looks like genocide when you have up to 20,000 innocent people killed in bombing, can I ask you this? Is yeah. there a light at the end of this horrible tunnel for the Palestinians? Will this get you closer to having a Palestinian state? Well, that's what we aim for. We urge the Australian government to work hard for this, to, for the first recognition of the Palestinian state, to, to, to recognize the suffering of the Palestinian people over, over years and years. And we actually work like, I mean, the, the, the Palestinian uh, um, uh, Authority work with Arab leaders and with uh, also European and foreign leaders to actually end up this crisis with a peace deal that end up with 
um, a, a Palestinian independent state. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think although this is all horrible, what's going on at the moment, I have a feeling that you're getting closer to that outcome. I've got to leave it there. I've run out of time. I'm very close to news. I'm sorry I can't speak to you longer. Uh, but Moyad Ali, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me today.